Welcome to The Meg Robinson Show, exploring the stories that make us who we are. I'm your host, Meg Robinson. I have known Lisa and Dick Hillman for almost 10 years. Both of them are highly regarded figures in Annapolis. Dick had been mayor. Lisa was a key player in the development of a new regional hospital in Annapolis. But what no one knew for years was that their son Jacob was using drugs. One day I read that Lisa had written a book about her family's struggles. I was shocked, but I was also deeply impressed by the courage it took to share this story, a story of suffering, secrets, and finally healing. You have two children, Jacob and Heidi. They're 15 years apart. So how did this story unfold? So I think the story really begins uh, late on a weekday August evening at the beginning of Jacob's senior year in high school. We're all home. The phone rings, and it's his teacher from Annapolis High School. And the teacher says to me, Lisa, several of Jake's friends have come to him, have come to me. We're, they're concerned about Jacob. They think he might be drinking. They think he might be smoking marijuana. They're not sure what else. But I think you should talk to Jacob. When I hung up that phone call, first I thought, oh, he has the wrong child. This certainly is not my son. Not my son couldn't possibly be involved in this. At the same time, my world totally changed. We were up until that point, uh, uh, what, what anyone would see as a pretty normal, whatever that is today, healthy, happy family. We'd already raised a healthy young woman who at that point was married and in her almost in her 30s. Um, She'd gone through school healthily and happily. Certainly this young man who was born late in life to us, who was smart and handsome and had everything going for him, certainly drugs could not be in our family. This was just, just so, so surreal to me and actually still is today. The same as uh, Lisa's. I was... uh... Uh, shocked and surprised, um, although not completely surprised, that uh, there were things going on in his life that were different than the first couple of years in high school, but I, I wasn't aware that they were drug-related. When you say different, what do you mean by that? Well, he, he seemed to be uh, drifting a little bit, um, n- not focused, and um, some he was letting some things pass by that that he had that had occupied his time uh, in the first couple of years of school when he was kind of giving up on them. Plus, he was involved in the International Baccalaureate Program. It was uh, his class, the class of of 2007 uh, at Annapolis High, was the first class uh, in IB, and that's a very um, intensive academic program where you have to write almost what's equivalent to a master's thesis. And he didn't seem to be focusing on that like he should, like some of his classmates were, uh, nor was he focusing on college applications. And when this call came in from a teacher, was he a junior? A senior. A senior. Beginning of his senior year. Okay. So, and I can only speak for myself. I'll I'll let Dick speak for himself. In my situation, I, um, as I said, for a little while, I thought he must have the wrong child. There's no no indication of any addiction in our family, so I didn't know where this came from. 
So I, I denied it for a long time. And that's a message I would have for parents. I mean, t- today we know that denial is deadly. And Jacob and I got through this, thank God. But we might not have because denying addiction can lead down a very dangerous road. But I did deny it for a long time because A, I still didn't think it was possible, not in our family. And B, if I faced the fact that he was really using drugs, I had no idea what to do about it. And how about you, Dick? Um, well, if the, the, we respected the teacher who called, and we respected the children who had talked to the teacher. And so if they thought that Jake was using marijuana, it wasn't that much of a surprise because high school kids experiment with all sorts of things. Um, it wasn't until uh, probably the next summer that we realized that he was using a lot of other things because the next summer was when he had strange visitors who would come into sleep in his bedroom at night and he he, he would hide out in his room and, and then uh, there was some paraphernalia was discovered. It sort of uh, was a spiral, a downhill spiral. And that whole senior year, back to the denial ideas, part of it was that um, I was aware kids, all kids, didn't all kids drink, didn't all kids smoke, didn't all kids experiment. I figured, okay, well, if he is doing it, that's he's a senior, he'd already been accepted into college, this is a normal rite of passage, the time will, will sort this one out. And we were very focused on getting him to college. That became a goal, just get him to College Park, and the smart people there will know what to do with him. That was the goal. So after that phone call with the high school teacher, what was the next major turning point? Well, there were small signs along the way, but the biggest one was, as as Dick was alluding to, Beach Week, when he was actually arrested. We got a phone call that he'd been arrested um, on a beach in North Carolina, and that started a court situation, which again, what are we doing in court with our child for something that he had done? Um, and then that further underlined a problem that I was having. And the story is really the, the story of how I faced the addiction and how I lived through it. During that time, I was totally ashamed. I was um, fearful of what would happen next. I was scared. I was depressed and, and isolated. So the shame of it kept me isolated. And it just kept getting worse and worse. Meanwhile, Jacob was getting worse and worse. One of the points that I think is so interesting is that all of the feelings that the person who's using drugs experiences of isolation and shame, um, fear of discovery, is also being felt by the families. Yeah, the, the feelings mirror each other, and you don't know that when you're going through it. Um, I, I, you know, if I'm talking to any families today who are experience, experiencing it, they'll understand it. I mean, the addict doesn't use because he really wants to. He gets into that cycle that he has to use, and um, he's afraid. He's afraid of being found out. He's afraid of being caught by police. He's afraid of not finding the, the, the next hit. So he lives a very fearful, awful life. He's ashamed, and addiction is very isolating. At least opioids are. I mean, heroin is is heroin loves isolation. What do you mean by that? Um, well, Jacob is pretty typical of of people that use heroin. Ultimately, they end up being pretty much alone using. Maybe they'll use with a friend, but typically they're they they go off almost like like you know sad creatures. They'll go off and use alone. 
so the isolation is is um is 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 a ripe a ripe bed for heroin to evolve. The antithesis is community and getting involved and getting and being involved, and that's where things like AA and spiritual communities and halfway houses all help people recover because they build that sense of family and community again that the addict has been missing. So maybe that's a red flag for parents when the friends start to change and the behavior changes as it did for Jake's senior year. Um, Dick, can you talk about that a little bit? The first thing that happened was that he had been on the track team for the first three years in high school and did not make the track team for his senior year, even though he'd had a pretty successful season the previous spring. Uh, So this was a surprise because he had enjoyed running and had been a a long-distance runner since like age seven. And not only did he enjoy the competition, but he enjoyed the camaraderie of uh, the track team. Uh, Track is one of the few sports where girls and boys train together. So that was a lot of fun, and they had a lot of nice parties and so forth. Uh, But he dropped all of that by not working out during the summer and got thrown off the team. So that was the that was really a major signal the beginning of the senior year. And then uh, then there was the question of when he was going to do his IB uh, project uh, and when he was going to file his applications for 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 uh, for college. So the senior year was pretty clearly drifting. He very nearly um, did not graduate from high school because uh, he had not finished a particular course. Uh, but he did graduate, and then he went to community college. As he likes to say when he talks to groups, um, he went to the community college, which is a two-year program, and in his third year, he realized that he was in trouble. But, and, and before he went to community college, he went to a year at the University of Maryland in a, in a um, honors program, which he did not take advantage of at all and flunked out. So let's go back to the track team, just as an example, um, I know you must have been worried why he dropped out. Did you sit down at that point and try to talk to him? It was, again, it was an accumulative activity. He didn't drop out of the track team. He just didn't make the track team for his senior year. And he didn't make the track team for his senior year because he wasn't trained. And when he, when just like, just like any other sport, they start even though school doesn't start till beginning of September, end of August, that the athletic teams start the beginning of beginning of August, and so he um, he he was not prepared. And all during the summer, we had said to him, "When are you going to train? When are you?" So it was sort of an accumulative thing. When he didn't make the team, that was his problem. We didn't we didn't criticize him or condemn him in any way. He didn't make the team because we figured he must not have wanted to make the team. And also, um, he had been in the band for three years, too, and uh, was sort of uh, sloughing that off. So when you have a kid whose engagement with the world changes dramatically, that's something to pay attention to. Well, during, during during the time that he was still in high school, it wasn't really clear that he was a heavy user. So it wasn't really a topic of conversation. It really wasn't until he flunked out of Maryland at the end of the next year uh, that we realized that there was a big problem with him. And uh, there wasn't so much interaction with the parents after that because all the other kids went away to college elsewhere. 
and so we and we had had very active involvement with the parents of his peers before that. So occasionally we would run into one in a in the shopping center or a grocery store, and we would sort of swing the topic around to their child rather than our child. But there really wasn't wasn't a lot of that. Um, even with our own family, uh, Lisa's brother and our sister-in-law uh, and, and other members of the family, there wasn't a lot of discussion, what is Jake up to? Um, it was, I guess the f- belief was some kids take a little more time to mature and he was you know, growing up and so forth and so on. So it wasn't a matter of discussing uh, his addiction. That didn't happen with, um, with friends and relatives really until he went into treatment. Yeah, I think I think two things. One is that Dick he was not working full time at the, at that time, so he was pretty much home and not in in a daily work world where he faced people that might ask lots of questions. That's number one. And number two, and I think and and my husband can correct me because I worked in healthcare, and typically you know the mother anyway is the one who makes a lot of the healthcare decisions. I think he either unknowingly or knowingly deferred to me to figure out what to do if something were wrong with Jake because I was I was the healthcare decision maker and I worked on a very high level in a very large healthcare system so clearly I was the one that was going to fix this and I would have done the same thing if our roles were reversed I would have deferred to him Lisa you talk in the book about the fact that mothers are fixers so how were you a fixer for Jake well you know we give birth to the children. Guys can't yet do that. Um, and, you know, I, if if we're normal moms, we love them the minute they're born and we, we raise them. And when they fall down, we pick them up and put a Band-Aid on them. And we keep doing that their whole lives. As they fall down, we keep picking them up. This was a case where my son was falling down and I couldn't pick him up. One time when we picked him up at the University of Maryland his freshman year, take him out to dinner, um, thinking, both of us looking forward to a nice evening where he would tell us how his classes were going and how school was going. Uh, Jake just sat glumly throughout the entire meal. I'm sure there was some depression involved. Monosyllabic the whole time. Dropped him off. He went back into his dorm. <laughs> we're driving away, and we turned to each other and said, well, that was fun. So that, that pretty much, I think, explained our interaction with him, that whole freshman year we both knew we both knew something was off and then once he came home and started the community college we got more active in figuring trying to figure out what was wrong and how to help him no i think that's she accurately portrayed that uh during all that time he was um eventually well eventually he was seeing a psychologist and you know we were we thought we were watching him carefully and and uh setting boundaries and so forth you know, we thought we were doing the right thing. Of course, it had no effect on his addiction. One one thing that we've learned about about addicts, and we've probably met a thousand of them now, uh, is that they are great liars. And of the ones we've met, uh, Jake is is right at the top. He, he he just has a winning personality, and he's very bright. And I think he just conned the psychologist. He even said he had. Um, the psychologist said to me, finally, J- Jake said, if I start seeing a psychologist and he tells you I'm okay, will you be okay with that? And I said, yes. So when it came time for me to see the psychologist and he said, your son's okay, 
I just told him to smoke less. Jake has since told us that he, he, he conned the guy. He didn't tell him how much he was using or even what he was using. So, um, yeah. So, again, another, another warning to parents. Just, you know, I guess be careful of, of who you go to. Just, and this is a very reputable area psychologist, but still, if it doesn't feel right to you, it probably isn't. And that, that didn't sound right to me at all. There were so many times in this story when your gut told you one thing and what was going on around you uh, was something else completely. Yeah, totally. Again, again, it's the shame and the denial that I was going through. I was still, even though he was home, even though we were seeing a psychologist, even though we knew there was a problem, I was so terrified that somebody would find out. So I'm trying to, quote unquote, treat him to fix him, to cure him, none of which a mother can do if a child has an addiction. But I'm trying to do this anyway in secret so that no one knows what I'm doing. So if I'm at work and I get a phone call that he's in trouble, I have to sneak out. Um, looking back on it, th- that was insane. And that just shows you the effects of this disease, this disease can have on people, on people who are healthy otherwise, on the families. People may wonder how much of this addiction is actually under somebody's control? I, I need to say for sure that I'm no expert in addiction. I'm one mom with one story, but my understanding, my limited knowledge of addiction is that an addict may, someone may choose to start using, may choose to test it, but if they get addicted, that's something gets triggered in the brain that turns that on. I always ask, why did Jacob use and other people used and he got addicted and they didn't? And nobody for sure can answer that. And then after a while, it's not a choice. They are sick. They are very sick people who don't want to keep using but can't figure out how to stop. So back to the anger, one of the therapists finally said to me, don't you ever get angry at your son? And I, I did get angry at him. But while I was angry, I realized I, I don't think he can control this. I think this is beyond his control. So the therapist says, but he still can make choices. And it, it got to a point, and we might get to this in the discussion, where we did have to give Jacob a final choice. And fortunately, he took, he took the right path. So Dick, what about your attitude towards Jake's problem as this was happening? You must have been angry. You must have wanted to tell him that he could, in fact, control this. So how did you feel as this was going on? I don't know that I don't know that we ever reached the point of saying you can control this, but but getting back to the anger question, we definitely had experiences of, of great anger because uh, he did things that um, that would make anyone angry. Like um, I think at least on four occasions, he um, came back to the house without the side mirror on the car. Um, repeating the same accident over and over and over again. Uh, another time he got angry with something that we asked him to do. I don't even remember what it was. And he put his fist through the um, sheetrock in a laundry room. Uh, we asked him not to have um, strange people come and spend the night in his uh, room. Um, and he continued to do that. It made us very angry. We, we, we did a lot of traveling in those days because... Uh, our daughter Heidi, was, who's married to an academy graduate, was living in San Diego. 
So we would, you know, go out there fairly frequently. On a number of those occasions, um, it was pretty clear that he had been using because he, he was just completely out of it. His eyes were like turned up in his head, and um, so yeah, it was a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of anger and a lot of disappointment. Another issue that's huge with um, when when someone's addicted or someone's a substance you know substance abuser is money. Money becomes a, a real problem. And I thought I thought Dick was going to mention um, we got angry at the times when he knew he was stealing from us. Not in the sense of going literally going into our wallets, but um, going 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 through a checking account and taking out money at, with no explanation. And that got to a point where we were furious with him and had to sh- start shutting things down. So he couldn't have access. There were lots of clues in retrospect. Did you piece together why he was taking money and what he was using it for? We had, we had already pieced it together. Um, this, this was in the, f- the fall of what was his third year at the community college. So this is already four years out from from uh, high school, a year in which his classmates in high school are graduating from college. And and, and during the summer after his second year, it was when a counselor uh, said to him, you need to go in in for treatment. And this, on several occasions, said that to him, and uh, he refused. So during that fall, that beginning of that, that next semester, was when money started disappearing and credit card problems and uh, he lost a job. He lost a second job. So that fall, again, this is the, his supposedly final semester. He in, intends to graduate and get his associate's degree in December. He's 21. And now this is, um, this is let's say, September, October. And all he wants to do is graduate. And all we want him to we, we're pulling for him, too. We want him to graduate. And at that point, I remember finding a halfway house in Calvert County, where he could live and commute to the college and finish it. And it was a halfway house that would test. It was a recovery house. And I'm thinking, that's that's a great solution. I remember talking to that owner of that halfway house, and she said to me, Lisa, as long as your son is using, college won't matter, jobs won't matter, nothing will matter. And I hung up on her thinking, this is really serious. He's not going to finish college. He's not going to get anything done unless he faces his addiction. So with the help of the therapists and others, it just got to a point with us. And I don't know what the trigger was for me, finally. It may have been, I got a phone call from, from Dick at work one day. And he said, you've got to go pick up your son at... Um, at work. And I remembered, I drove and picked Jake up at work. I don't know how he got from the edge of the store into my car, because he was just shuffling along. He sat in the car seat, he lay back, he was out. I remember there were times when I would go into his room at night to make sure he was still breathing. I mean, that's how bad it got that, 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 ter- that time. So I finally said to him, we together, we said, we're going to give you a choice. You can continue to use, but you cannot live in our house or we will pay for treatment. And then I held my breath. 
and then the images of my son going ragged and homeless and the gutter went through my head and I sucked up my thoughts and finally he said, okay, I'll take treatment. He wasn't ready, but at least, thank God, he said yes to treatment. Well, they say, you know, an addict has to be really ready to get well, that they, they may have more runs in them, more, more, more drugs to use inside of them. He, um, he was well, in- wait a minute. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't ready to go to treatment, but he also was not ready to go live on the street. So given treatment, which we were going to pay for, or living on the street, he chose treatment. So I think what the therapist would say to you is that, that he was forced to face the consequences of his actions at that point. He was forced to face the idea that, oh my gosh, he's not going to have a safe, cushy roof over his head, free food, a car. All of this was about to disappear. And I think he was shocked and realized he had nowhere to go. So he took treatment thinking, that's my only option at this point, even though he, he really wasn't ready to get well. And Dick, were you totally on board with this? Oh, yeah. Well, I knew, I knew that he wouldn't want to be out on the street because, in my experience, homeless people live under interstate bridges, and we don't have any interstate bridges in Annapolis. So, and, and, and we had, Jake and I had had that discussion at one point. Uh, because we had we had seen homeless people like in Seattle and other places where they actually you know live under interstate bridges, so we we it never occurred to us that you could go to treatment and flunk out of treatment. He went to um, a gorgeous place in Harford County, Father Martin's, which is called Ashley Treatment now. Beautiful place, very spiritual. Very expensive. Very expensive. That's another thing with addiction. I think we're blessed that we had resources to help him. Not all families do, and that's another another whole side of this. Um, and while he was there, they, they take away your cell phone, they take away your computers, nothing. So supposedly no contact with the outside world, nor with us. We were not allowed to see him for 10 days. And on our first visit there on a Sunday, I, I knew for the moment I saw him that something was off. He said, Mom... The $25 you gave me is gone. Things here are really expensive. The sodas are expensive. The cookies and candies are expensive. So I, as we were driving home, I called his counselor and I said, you better check him, something's wrong. And sure enough, he, had, he and another guy had gotten a phone, called someone, and over a fence had gotten something and, and got, had used, and he got kicked out. Then, fortunately, uh, he came, Pathways was the fallback, the Pathways Treatment Center, which is part of Anne Arundel Medical Center's program. And here we go with this shame thing again. I'm on the board of Pathways. I was then, I am now. And here my son is a patient at Pathways. Uh, So it really was at that point that I was forced to come out of my hiding. Um, The therapist at that same time said to me, Lisa, you have to tell somebody at work. You have just have to tell somebody. So I took a Friday afternoon when I had a meeting with the then CEO and the incoming CEO and said to them, guys, I have something to tell you. I watched their bodies stiffen because Friday afternoon in the workplace is usually bad news. And I said, my son has a serious health issue. I think he's coming to Pathways. And they said, 
Let us know. You're not alone. Let us know what we can do for you. Thank you for telling us. And how did you feel once you told them? So when I walked out of that office and walked back to my own office, I felt really like a huge weight had been lifted. I I felt like at least two people, not only two people, but two people I really respected and, and were very fond of, knew and were in my corner. I felt immensely relieved right away. And Dick, what about you? Did you have people you could talk to about this? Um, I don't think so right at that time. I don't, I don't remember. The, the, the issue then was packing him up and, and cleaning out his room. And, uh, we were so focused on what happened to him next. I don't remember discussing with anybody else. Again, I wasn't in a bureaucracy, any place to discuss with a lot of people. Well, I didn't run out and call people and say, Hey, (laughs) our son's now in treatment here at Pathways. You know, I didn't. Did you feel there was anyone that you could confide in, a family member, a really close friend? No. I, I don't know. I don't recall that I even needed to confide in anybody or what they I didn't perceive that there was anyone who could help Jake, uh, so I didn't get in touch with anyone. I didn't, I didn't think about anyone helping me. And do you feel, in retrospect, that it would have helped you to talk to someone? Oh, definitely. Yeah, because the next question you're going to ask is, what happened to Lisa next? And she's going to tell you what what we're doing now and what we've been doing for the last seven years. So the second thing the counselor said to me, Jake goes to Pathways two weeks, which is definitely not long enough, another, another whole part of the side of the story. Um, and at the end of the two weeks, he they recommend that he go to Florida for continued... Uh, to live in a halfway house and to have continued outpatient therapy. We went along with that idea. Um, he goes to Florida. The therapist says to me, okay, your son will have his program. What are you going to do for yourself? And at that point, I really thought the therapist had lost it because I I don't have an addiction. I'm not the sick one. But then I realized, oh my gosh, I'm definitely sick. You know, I'm crying all the time. I'm obsessed with my son. I'm ashamed. I'm fearful. I'm depressed. Oh, yes. So I was definitely affected by the disease of addiction. And he suggested I try Al-Anon. So I did. Um, I go to Al-Anon. Again, terrified someone's going to find out that I'm there. But Al-Anon has anonymity as a, as a cloak. It's, it's a protective shield for anyone who wants to go. So I knew that would protect me when I went in there. I went to the first meeting, came home, and said to my husband, I'd like to try a different kind of meeting. Go with me one time for me, and then come again, but only come for yourself, because Al-Anon is not a couples program. It's an individual program. It, I knew it would help me. I wasn't sure about him. So we went to another meeting, an Al-Anon meeting, walk in, very large meeting. There are two couples there whom we know really, really, really well. And both were suffering from their children also. We had no idea. So you walk into an Al-Anon meeting and you see people you know. What was that like? Um, What was it like? Um, I'm not sure. I focused on them, and I was sorry to see them there. But I was more concerned about what was going to happen at an Al-Anon meeting. You know, I didn't know whether... There were human sacrifices, or whether we had to sit there <laughs> naked, or you know what was what would go on. So it wasn't until some weeks later that I really felt comfortable with with these other people there. 
now it's seven years later. And I think that our experience with, with Al-Anon has been such a, a wonderful experience that we believe that everyone in the world should have a 12-step program. It has nothing to do with addiction because the focus is on the members of the group and not on the, the person who's the addict in, in Al-Anon, I guess in other 12-step programs called the qualifier. In other words, someone who qualifies you to come to uh, Al-Anon in the first place. But I don't think you need anyone to qualify you to come to Al-Anon. I think everyone should go to a 12-step program. And in fact, um, the... Um, uh, our program, we, we go to a meeting in Arnold, which is not too far from community college. We often have um, people who are studying addiction or involved in some way who, who, who are advised by their teachers and their programs to go to an Al-Anon meeting just to see what it, what it said. And it's anonymous anyway. So, Once you started to go to Al-Anon, how did that change things for you both? Well, for me, um, it, it, it was instant camaraderie, instant comfort, to walk into a room and see 30 or 40 people who get it, who knew exactly how I was feeling, because we were all feeling the same way, whether it was a husband or a son or a daughter, it didn't matter. Um, so for me, that was that was instant relief. And I would literally lurch from week to week. It was a Thursday night meeting, and I couldn't wait for the next Thursday night meeting and the next Thursday. Meanwhile, in between, even at the hospital, I would see people whom I'd seen either at that meeting or other meetings, and we'd sort of, you know, not literally wink at each other, but just seeing each other, it was, it was truly like seeing a little angel in your life. Just seeing that person calmed you and grounded you and settled you down, and you knew you could, you'd be fine. You just knew it, because we were all getting through our day just fine. What it teaches you is to keep the focus on yourself, not the addict. So not that during this time I ever forgot about Jake, that was impossible, but I wasn't obsessing with him like I had been. And I was learning that, like I'm a mom, I was learning I couldn't fix him, he was gonna have to fix himself. I was learning to love him from afar and re really let him go and let him grow up. That's what Alanon taught me to do. Jake is in Florida, he's been in recovery, but he did have a misstep or two can you talk about that? He had um, one sort of, I don't know if you call it minor or major misstep. In the first six months he was there, six months later, he called on the phone. It was a July evening. We were driving, and I remember his saying, Mom, just want you to know I, I, I fell back. Um, I'm okay. I got myself back together again. I wanted you to know. And I remember saying, Honey, thank you for telling us. I'm proud that you're honest with us. Thank, thank you for taking care of yourself. You're the only one who can. And he said, thanks, Mom. That's what I needed to hear. Six months later, however, he had a, what I, I guess, a major, um, the, the new language is reoccurrence, a major reoccurrence of the disease. And a counselor we had been sort of paying to keep an eye on him called us and said, your son needs detox badly. He had been using heroin, uh, living in a house with a, another young woman, and he apparently really needed detox. That that started his path up, really really began a, a path up for him out of addiction. Do you think he had to hit rock bottom in order to make a full recovery? Yeah, I don't know if it's rock bottom. You know, sometimes that's a cliche, sometimes. But he had certainly hit a bottom. He was aware that, I think that particular 
incidents scared even him. I think he was aware that if he kept going like that, that he couldn't keep going like that. Um, so that scared him enough to get him into treatment. And fortunately, he stayed in treatment. He, when he first went to treatment, he said, I'm only going to stay for the weekend. I don't want to lose my job. Remember, I'd said earlier, it doesn't matter if you have an addiction, jobs don't matter, school, not family doesn't matter. So we kind of prayed that he would stay in treatment. And he did. He stayed for 100 days, which again, in his case was, was, was good. I mean, he, he, if he'd left earlier, he wouldn't, I don't know that he'd even be alive today. He stayed for the 100 days. Then he went six months into a recovery house, a really good recovery house where they tested him and kept him clean. And during that time, he started going to AA, found a sponsor, a lovely young man with whom we're very close today. Uh, so the classic, the classic best thing that can happen is he stayed in treatment, he found a sponsor, he found AA, he worked the 12 steps, he found what he calls a higher power, he, some spirituality came into his life, which he'd never had before. And that's what's keeping him clean today. One of the things that um, Al-Anon teaches you is that um, relapses are part of recovery. And so it wasn't that much of a surprise. It really wasn't a surprise at all. I, I had visited him. I had visited him around the holiday of Veterans Day. And he was living with a guy. And it was pretty clear that there was they were using, and he, he there was a young lady there. The young lady eventually got in trouble with in early January or New Year's Eve, with whom he was using. It was pretty clear that he was things were not right. I mean, we we had a nice time for three or four days, but I wasn't comfortable when I came back home. So we weren't we weren't really surprised that he had this relapse. We were surprised at how deep it was. But getting back to whether this was his bottom, uh, when he went into treatment, and as Lisa just said, he, he thought he was just going to be there for a weekend and then go back to his job um, on Monday. He had already been fired. So he wasn't going back to any job. And and he used while he was in treatment. He used for the first 20... For which, for which program are you talking about? This, this program where he, where he had had this major relapse. He... he for the first 23 days that he was there, he um, he used other, other people's leftover medication. Sleep medicine. Sleep medicine and so forth. Um, so he wasn't really serious about it for the first 23 days of of of, um, of that year. That was, I guess, 2012. So what do you think the switch was? Well, the switch was that, that he was in a group session um, and... They were all talking about how they were going to, you know, handle the next few weeks in recovery, and they were getting a little bit more freedom and so forth. And two or three people in the room turned to him and and, and called him out. They said, "You're not, you're not, you're not doing the program. You're, you're lying. You're not serious about it." They called him Captain Recovery. Look at you, Captain Recovery. You're not serious. And so um, that was very salient for him. And then within a short time after that. He, uh, they take these the, the patients out to AA meetings in in the in the area. He was in Fort Lauderdale at the time, and he, that was when he saw this other fellow there, who was in recovery, uh, but he seemed really cool and a nice guy, and so he went up to him and said, because because they talk about sharing phone numbers, said, "Can I have your phone number and maybe you could be my sponsor?" And Phil said, "Sure," 
and that was that was a big big change in in his life. The other thing, getting back to Al-Anon, it's really a two-way street. While he was when he first went to Florida and first went to A meetings and was in the halfway house, he was very happy when he learned that we were going to Al-Anon because we were then off his back completely. You know, he he was totally. He came to realize that it was totally him. He had to do, his recovery was, was only his. We we couldn't help him. And then we were speaking his language. The 12 steps are the same 12 steps as in AA, in Al-Anon, literally the same except for two words. Um, and so all through, the, the reason he was so so comfortable telling Lisa that he'd had this relapse six months later was that he knew that we wouldn't we wouldn't be surprised that we wouldn't be upset, that we we would leave it up to him to, and 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 since that time, um, as we've gotten more involved in in our Al-Anon group, and he's gotten really involved in in a couple of the groups in Florida, uh, we have continual conversations about you know what do you do in this situation at a meeting when such and such happens, and we want to try to change this or that, you know it's it's. Um, it's it's been a whole new life for us. We we don't always uh, Jake and I don't always talk about how the Mar- Terps are doing or the Orioles or Miami Dolphins anymore. So what is Jake doing now? He works in recovery. He he oversees he and a, a woman oversee a group of recovery houses. So he actually works in the field, which only further reinforces his sobriety. He's the chief financial officer. It's on his business card. I can't help but think that had you gone to Al-Anon earlier, it would have been an easier journey. So it's very parallel to how do you get the addict to go to AA. They say you go, you come to Al-Anon when you're ready. You find it when you need it. You find it when you're ready. It was suggested to me actually a while prior to that to go to Al-Anon, and I thought, that's not for me. That's, and it wasn't until the therapist then said to me, your son is going to have his program. What are you going to do for yourself? That I realized I needed something. So I think people come to Al-Anon when they need it. And it's not for everyone. Um, we like to say, go to several meetings to you can find one that you really feel comfortable with because they're, most they're very different. They run basically the same, but each one has a slightly different personality. So I think in answer to the question, you can't you can't promote, you can't force somebody to go. You can't promote it. When we run into families that are struggling, we say, well, Al-Anon helped me, and it's there for you if, you if you want to try it. And that's all you can do. So now there's Heidi, Jake's sister. She was living in California, but this problem affects everyone in a family. And I'm just curious to know how it affected her. So obviously, Heidi, 15 years older than Jake, they're born on the same day, so it's almost a generation apart. When we were going through this with him when he was in high school and college, those years, she was furious with him. Um, She was really angry, wanted nothing to do with him, had almost nothing to do with him, was really never around him very much. Uh, She lived in California, even when when she moved back here to Maryland, that was when he moved to Florida. So they were never physically, geographically close. But she was furious. Um, the only time that she really came into close contact with him was the day that he left for Florida. And that's it's a poignant moment in the book where I come home from work to say goodbye to Jake because he's packing up to move to Florida. 
And unbeknownst to me, my husband had called her and said, why don't you come into town that day and stay with mom? Because she's going to be upset that Jacob is leaving and you can, you can stay with her. She doesn't, she's not even aware to this day how valuable that was to me to have her by my side that day. I don't think, because she has not read the book. She hasn't read the book? She says, Mom, I lived it. I don't need to read it. So I don't think she's aware of how, how her presence that day was so important to me and helped me so much and helped him too, helped all of us. But after that, Jake was in Florida and she didn't see him. Today, they are very close. They're really too close because we think they're plotting against us. Here's, here's how close they are. Um, uh, Jake's going to be here this weekend and she's going to pick him up or he's going to go to her house, whatever, and um, she's going to an AA meeting with him Sunday night. What was the biggest impact of having written your story? Well, I wrote the book as I was writing the book. I never, I never was certain it would be published as I was writing it. I was never certain I'd want to publish it, nor would my son allow me to get it published. But as I was writing it, I'm thinking, I've lived this, story of discovery, then denial, then shame and fear and isolation, so unhealthy. There are other women like me doing the same thing. So maybe if they read my story, it will help them. So I did want to get it published. Jacob gave me permission to get it published. And since the book has come out, I think what he has realized, and as as I have, that people don't really care about my story they care about their own stories. And it has brought out, to me, many people who just want to talk about what's going on in their lives. Even the very few times that Jake's been here with me when we've been walking around or someone will mention, he was with with us at the book launch, at the opening. People came up to him and didn't, didn't ask him about him. They wanted to ask him about people that are in their families that are having a problem. So he said, Mom... People, we're bringing people out to talk about addiction and helping them in their lives. He's realized that the book is starting, is hopefully helping people, and that was the goal the whole time. So to that degree, I'm grateful, and I'm glad to talk about it. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's there for people. Well, you should know what Jake told her when he read the book for the first time. He told her, he told her that he didn't think it was very literary. <laughs> and I, we're not sure what we're not sure what he was expecting, but we told him his life wasn't that literary either. The publication of the book really hasn't affected me, except people keep coming up to me and telling me how wonderful my wife is. But you know, I don't know why they didn't realize that in the first place. What is it about a person, do you think, that maybe makes them more vulnerable to getting addicted to drugs? We've had long conversations about this. You know, why did you start and what caused it and did I cause it and all that stuff, you know. Um, he finally said to me, Mom, get over it. You didn't cause it. But he will say, and he said this in front of other groups, that he just felt different. And we hear this from a lot of addicts. They just feel different. Um, Jake describes it as having a hole inside of himself. He just didn't feel right. And either drinking or using drugs filled that hole and he felt like he fit in it took away the he never used the term social anxiety but it took away that feeling of being different it made him feel like he fit in because the challenge is if you take away the drug then you still have the hole well the irony with jake is that um 
this lack of self-confidence and feeling that he was a loner, uh, which led to his wanting to use to make him feel like he belonged, is a concept that when he shares that with his classmates, they just find it incredible. And we hear that a lot at at AA and Al-Anon meetings that we go to uh, of people who are qualifiers who talk about the fact that they just felt like they were all alone. So what do you think the next chapter is going to look like for all of you? It is lovely that there are two programs, one for the family and one for the addict, because if both parties sort of pursue that, it just inevitably it brings you closer because you've got this common language and common understanding. So yes, I do do think we'll probably go to Al-Anon for the rest of our lives, if not only because it keeps us grounded, but we want to be able to help others and give back. And that's a way to to do it. And Jake feels the same way I think about AA. So what's next is um, today. (laughs) You know, it's again, they say one day at a time, and it truly is one day at a time. We're of an age where it is one day at a time. Um, life is very, very good right now for all of us. We love him. We love our daughter. We're just very blessed right now. A lot of people are putting a lot of focus on addiction. We still need longer treatment programs. Two weeks, 30 days for most people is not just not enough. It wasn't enough for Jake. It's not enough for a lot of people that we know. We need 90-day programs. We need six-month. We need year-long programs. That's number one. Number two, we need more recovery houses, the interim spaces for people to live between inpatient treatment and leading a full life again. With appropriate, well-run recovery houses, people learn to become tax-paying citizens again, so we restore them to lives. Number three, we need more help for families. Like Al-Anon, family support programs, we need to recognize that addiction hurts and destroys families as much as those who are abusing the drugs. Number four, we need to start earlier with children. 12-year-olds are dying too. So we need to get into the late elementary school or the middle school. Junior and senior year of high school is too late. Got to start earlier. And the fifth thing I would say is to remember, it's very hard to think about this when you're going through it, that recovery is possible. As long as the addict is alive, and as long as you are alive, there's still hope. Thank you, Lisa and Dick, for such a compelling and beautifully told story. The book is called Secret No More, A True Story of Hope for Parents with an Addicted Child. If you have a story you would like to share or any thoughts on this episode, email me. I would love to hear from you. That's hello at themegrobinsonshow.com. Stay tuned for more of the stories that make us who we are. I'm Meg Robinson.